My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Sundays with Tozer on Mickles and Dimes. Justin Tozer is singular. One of the smartest, kindest, most generous, insightful, caring, understated, hardworking, impactful, selfless people to have ever lived. If you've never met Tozer, I bet you're skeptical. If you have met Tozer, I bet you agree with me. A math and science prodigy, Tozer grew up on a farm where formal education was all but prohibited. Yet somehow Tozer would make his way to the world's most prestigious firms, first in Silicon Valley and later in Los Alamos at the world's preeminent scientific lab. Yet no professional accomplishment compares to the countless lives Tozer has saved, changed, and enhanced. Please take the time to get to know Justin Tozer through this podcast. You will become a better person for it, and you will see that Tozer is singular. Sundays with Tozer, Episode 3. Tozer Goes to College. Well, I think uh, last time we were talking about high school, and you talked about how you joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You were talking about prayers that had been answered. You talked about your counselor who um, helped you get into BYU. Anything else? As you think about high school, before we move to you moving out of the home, is there anything else that stands out to you as you think about high school and your time at school, your time at home, your time on the farm? I was always really excited to to go to this imaginary place called college. So um, mm-hmm. that it might, you know, I didn't know anybody who'd ever been to college except, you know, the teachers at school. Um, so I really looked forward to it. And um, I think I had great. I was, though I did get paddled by a few teachers, all of my teachers were fantastic. And I think that's important. Um, I think pub, uh, I, I think the public school system, I hope it still gets the job done, but I'm thankful for what I learned. It wasn't as good as most other uh, students that made it uh, to college, um, but uh, it was enough for me to move forward. You know, a lot of schools have like advanced placement classes and stuff. And, yeah. And uh, we didn't even have, uh, you know, a calculus class. We had a, an advanced math class, and that was the best I could get um, in high school. Did you learn calculus in high school then? Just self taught? Um, I bought a calculus book in high school. And once I finished the. Um, the advanced math class in high school, I decided to just study calculus on my own for the fun of it. So if if you had to guess, you know, if you had to estimate what percentage of the population buys a calculus book on their own to study in their spare time, what would you put that probability at? (laughs) Probably pretty low, but you know, when you think it's the key to something that you want, something that you're excited about uh self-study is a big deal yeah and um i probably don't need to tell you that because um i know that um you've pursued many uh topics and studied many things just because you're interested in them in 
in those things. Um, you know, isn't you think of, of a couple of the wealthiest people in the world right now? Um, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, not perfect people by any means, but you go back and look at their history. Um, they loved learning and they loved applying that learning. And um, sometimes I feel bad for them that they really get, um, they get so much criticism. Um, Rarely do people remember that they started with little of nothing, you know. One of my um, favorite Bill interviews. He started in his garage. And, um, Elon Musk couldn't even get anybody to hire him out of college. Really? You know? Finally, had to start his own little company, which turned out to be hugely successful. My brain's going to fail me here. Was it PayPal? Yeah. And, you know, it's pretty big nowadays. Yeah. Um, it doesn't own it anymore. But And I mean, I think he started a company and it was they, you know, either Peter Thiel, one of those, it, at one point bought him out and merged and yeah, created PayPal. One of my favorite interviews with Elon, he was, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes and I think it was Scott Pelley that was asking him, you know, how did you start a rocket ship company? You're not a aerospace engineer. And he said, I read a lot of books and the, you know, Pelly says, well, seriously, like, how did you start a rocket ship company? And he says, seriously, <laughs> I read a lot of books. <laughs> I kind of find it humorous. Um, people, um, when Elon answers questions, you have to take it into the context of his mindset. And, um, you know, I, you'll hear on social media, this little clip where he says, you know, you don't need a college degree to be uh, successful, to accomplish great things. And you look at people who, you know, they're never going to probably uh, achieve the success they want because they're not putting any effort into anything. They need to remember that Elon put tremendous effort into learning. And um, they tell us in... Um, I used to have a professor um, in college that said we were getting our bachelor's degree to learn how to learn. And that's all it was good for, he said, to learn how to learn. Really? You're not going to learn everything that you need to be a, a, a great engineer or a great scientist. You're going to learn how to learn. And then you'll be able to go off and, and accomplish, you know, great things. But if you don't learn how to learn, then degree or no degree, you're um, you're not going to be able to be successful in the industry. That's pretty cool. The very the second episode I ever published on this podcast was about that very topic and how the point of school is basically to learn how to learn. Yeah. When you were applying to colleges, did you apply to any other school other than BYU, or was that the only school you applied to get into and the only one I applied to. Okay. But remember they didn't like sending. Um, I, I, I thought they wanted me to correspond with them and they dutifully um, uh, responded to my letters and I got an acceptance way, way 
early. Uh, other kids were still hadn't even started applying to colleges. So maybe I maybe there was no need to actually think about another school. So how did you start preparing to move away from Colorado to go to Utah? Had you ever been to Utah to Provo? No. Mm-mm. So what what what's like what are you thinking? Like you're going to you're going to go to Utah, you've never been there. You're going to go to BYU. You've only met one or maybe a handful of people that have ever been there. There's no internet. I mean, I guess there's maybe encyclopedias where you can There's libraries in those days. So yeah. oh, and it, you mean as a we had inci- uh, um encyclopedias, yeah. Um but um I used um our high school library a lot and in those days um the universities would send you information and i'm probably the only college student that ever one of the few that sat down and read all of that <laughs> stuff yeah. cover to cover um and um they're just kind of weird um so I got baptized into the church um, in my senior year. Okay. And um, I had gone through all these calculations about how much it was going to cost me, how I was going to deal with the costs of college. And there was lots of, nobody else cared what those questions were or how I was going to solve the problem. And I felt a great burden uh, to deal with the finances, right? But I get to BYU and I start looking at my, uh, you know, I get my uh, bank statement and I'm looking at that and I'm like, oh my gosh, they billed me wrong. My tuition is wrong. And um, I can't deal with that mentally. I was very frustrated, and I went to the uh, administration building. I don't know if it's in the same place, you know, that funny-looking building with, like, four wings on it or something, yeah. And um, I was there for a long time, argued extensively. They said, "Uh, well, you're a member of the church, and so you have different tuition. (laughs) And I'm like, those people who get the lower tuition – they and their families paid tithing. I am just a recent member of the church, and I have not earned the lower tuition yet. Matter of fact, I don't make much money at all. (laughs) And you haven't got much tithing from me. And back and forth, can I talk to the supervisor? And, And on and on, it just seemed totally wrong. As a matter of fact, I felt like it cheapened. Um, it, uh, I felt like it made it look like I joined to get a lower cost yeah. tuition or something. And yeah, I'm sure they probably still laugh about that visit today. But it's just, you know, a simple-minded person went in and was upset because things weren't adding up the way I thought they should. And the discount was probably what, like 75% off, 50% off? Probably about 50% off. I, I'm not sure. It's been a long time. Yeah. 
but money was a lot harder to come by in those days and um, employment was often tight in those days. So did your dad pay you on the farm? Like, had you been saving up money? No. So how, yeah, how are you paying for college? So um, that uh, I realized that part of my preparation to go to college was I needed income because there was no income uh, working for my dad. And I also knew that he totally disapproved of me working anywhere except for him. So I needed a good paying job and I needed to be close to where I lived. And the only thing close was the uh, CO2 carbon dioxide plant. And um, in my mind, that was like the dream job to have. And um, I called and talked to somebody and they told me to come up and fill out an application. They seemed like they were excited for me to come work there. And then I got there and clearly they thought that it was going to be my big, strong brother that was going to show up. <laughs> and instead, what they got was this little short twerp that showed up. And there's the disappointment in their eyes was just, you know, it, it was clear that they were disappointed. But uh, no didn't mean no to me. <laughs> um, I said, you know, I'm I'm ready to go to work. And he went ahead and he told me, go ahead and fill out the application. And then he looked at the application and he said, look, you're not even old enough to work here. You know, you have to be at least 18 to work in this type of facility. And I don't know if he just realized that I couldn't accept that answer or what. And he says, you see that, uh, you know, your year of birth, he says, um, I, I need you to make a correction there. And show up the next day. And I think my first day on the job, I worked um, two shifts, 16 hours. It ran, uh, the plant ran around the clock, you know, tw uh, 24 hours a day. And um, so when I got there for my first shift, um, they said, Today, I asked, what, what has to be, what do we need to accomplish today? And they said, well, we need to load ice on this truck and that truck and that truck. And so I started working on it. And pretty soon, some guy come over and said something like, uh, well, you can go now if you want. But that, none of that made any sense to me. It was like, well, I the boss talked to me and he said that, this truck and that truck and that truck need to be loaded and we're not done with that. And then suddenly I noticed that everyone just kind of disappeared for a little while. And then there were new faces and um, someone come over and said, hi. And I said, I'm new. And um, it wasn't until I worked 16 hours that the third shift come on and they said, when did you come? When did you get here? They didn't tell us that we had anybody new on our shift. I told them, well, I got there at like seven in the morning. And they're like, well, you should go home now. It's like, 
the whole concept of, uh, you know, working off the farm um, was, had no experience with that. So is this, did this happen in Cortez when you're trying to save up for college or did this happen when you got to Provo? This happened, um, the, the dry ice plant is, is near um, uh, the home where I grew up. So, and so you- I was still in high school and I think it was uh, the summer break. And um, so I was able to make quite a bit of money there. Um, and they liked the idea that I didn't know when it was time to stop work. And so 100 hour weeks were common. Uh, my first um, year in college, um, every vacation, they would schedule me to work at the plant um, so the employees could have um, time off for the holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, one holiday break, I worked 72 hours without stop. And I thought it was fun as I'll get out. Hold up. So a couple of things. How did your dad, what did your dad think about you working at the plant instead of on the farm? I guess there's very angry. Um, he was very upset by that. He wanted all of the kids to work on the ranch. And um, someday when we got married or had kids, he probably wanted all of us to get a, you know, a, a, a mobile, uh, uh, a mobile home or something and pull it up next to his place. Everyone was supposed to work on his farm and ranch. But how do you, so how do you go about that conversation when you say like, dad, I'm not going to work on the ranch today. I got this other job that's going to pay me money. I'm going to keep the money. Um, he's just was angry a lot, very angry. He, there wasn't much communication. He didn't communicate very well. I know my mom would try to soften him up a little bit, you know, uh, try to tell him how important it was that that I do that. Um, but I, I don't know that he really got over that until much, much later in my life. Had your brother ever tried to get a job outside of the farm, outside of the ranch? Yeah. Um, my brother and my dad, they had a number of falling outs over time. And eventually my brother kind of went off on his own and, um, he struggled for a while and then he started doing, uh, started doing pretty good. Were you worried that your dad would like kick you out of the house? Cause you weren't going to work on the farm or you just knew that he's not going to kick me out, but it's just going to strain the relationship. Um, if anything, I probably hoped that. Uh, if I hadn't been kicked out, it probably wouldn't have been like having permission to leave. Might have felt good, probably. <laughs> <laughs> this is a strange family. So, how do you how do you work for seventy two hours without stopping? That doesn't seem possible. Like, you, you literally didn't sleep for that many days. No, before. no, we can't. Um, in a huge facility like that. There's so much to do just to keep everything functioning safely and correctly. 
And so you're very busy and um, um, you take, um, <laughs> at that time, um, they had these little, um, you probably, um, the Apollo program was over with probably when you were born, I'm not yeah. sure. Um, anyway, we had astronaut food and um, I, I love to think that I could accomplish anything while eating <laughs> these, you know, some type of, of nutrition bars that the astronauts ate. We didn't have a lot. You didn't see a lot of nutrition bars or anything like that on the market. That was a new thing that started with the Apollo program. Have you ever worked or stayed awake for 72 hours straight since then? Mm-hmm. Uh, in Los Alamos, we had a, uh, a rollout of a new system that was critical for, uh, the, for the laboratory and we had to be successful in that. And I was in charge of it and, um, yeah, I was there for, um, longer than 72 hours continuously. And when I went home. Fortunately, my boss had somebody drive me because once you get older, that much sleep loss is not good. And your mistake level starts going up once you haven't, if, if you haven't slept in a while. Do you, do you go home and sleep for like 24 hours or how does that work when you pull these long shifts? Mm, I think after that one, I went home and slept for probably um, maybe nine to 10 hours. Um, I normally can sleep for five to six hours and then there it's just, I, I've never been a person who's slept for a long time. Do you ever think like how much your managers love you when you're willing to work for 72 hours and work multiple shifts and be happy on astronaut food <laughs> and you just see them with their like feet kicked up, just like laughing i think they appreciated it i remember um during one of those uh, i think maybe it's a christmas holiday um uh multi-day shift things i did at the dry ice plant um i saw the my manager uh sneaking down peering in through one of the doorways into the plant i think he's just checking on me mm -hmm. um and i felt like he probably appreciated me and at that time his um his son uh had cancer and they didn't know if he was going to live and so you know i wanted him to have I, I wanted him as a father to have that opportunity to be with his son yeah um so yeah but I do know some of the some of my coworkers. If I was having a problem at the plant, and I called them in the middle of the night at their house, and you know they're inside that house, and they lived in houses that were built by the company right around the plant. Uh, I don't know how many times I call and call and call, and nobody'd ever pick up the phone. They just <laughs> like <laughs> you bought into this. You're on your own. What, are, do you ever get bored when you're working on a project like that? Like, how do you maintain your motivation level? 
or you just not think about it? Like what's, what's the thought process? Cause I worked at, I was, and I say this, I worked at a, I worked at a plant once. I worked at a beef jerky plant for one day and I never went back. <laughs> well, it, it probably all, I like the idea of being the person. Okay. To run the whole plant, you need to know how everything works, right? Um, a CO2 plant, you need to uh, know how uh, the gas gets there from the wellhead. You need to know how the compressors work, the refrigeration systems. And um, for me, I was like in a Disneyland. Um, I was studying everything and uh, interested in how liquid CO2 made a phase change into a solid CO2. Um, there was just so much to learn there and I wanted to know it all. Hmm. And so um, as I go around the plant, I'm, I, I wanted to know what every one of those pipes had in it, um, what made everything work. Um, yeah, so I, I, I loved it in a way that most other people didn't. So it's just the curiosity. Yeah. And then to go to college and um, start taking classes in engineering and fluid mechanics and thermodynamics and heat transfer. And it's like everyone else is sitting there like, oh, this is boring. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. This is super exciting. Wow, this is exciting. Um, because it explains how things work. So going back just a little bit, you you mentioned you did poorly on the ACT and the English probably slash reading sections, but you read a lot, so you were probably a pretty good reader, right? Yeah. I mean, especially you're reading all that material from BYU and figuring out how to make this transition from Colorado to a university where you've never been and... Was that overwhelming to you or just you're just motivated because it's the next phase and you know that when you want to do something, you're just going to do it? When I got to BYU and I got into, first of all, I didn't, you know very well what general education courses are, right? Yeah. And nowadays I think they say, okay, you got to complete a chunk of these general education courses like um up front but i took a different approach and the rules were not really maybe it's because of me that rules were put in place but i said look i i want to get to the good stuff um i'm not so interested in all of this other general education stuff which people just sit around and fiddle their fingers with hold up hold up some people really like poetry and history. They're not fiddling their fingers. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. By the way, when I finally did get to the general education classes, I I enjoyed them. But a large portion of those were completed out towards the junior and senior years, not when I first got there. I wanted physics, chemistry, um, engineering. Um, I wanted all of that stuff right from the beginning. Um, but I got into some of that stuff and um, I would go take the test 
study really hard, take the test. And I'm like, hmm, I'm going to like a C. And it's like, I want to know this stuff. A C says, you didn't learn it. Yeah. And I do feel like I learned it. What is wrong with me? And I remember going home one night with my C from probably like some organic chemistry class or something. And um, um, I was very sad, probably even shed a few tears. And, um, and I said a prayer, um, I need to know with it, you know, am I capable of this stuff? Because I want A's. I want to know this stuff and I want to know it for the rest of my life. And I got an answer, which most people think are really weird. Um, the library had this room, a glassed in area. Maybe it's still there. It was called the Honor Study Room. And um, the, the great students would go there to study. So um, I was not in their honors program. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, let's go see if anybody checks to see whether you're, you know, an honors person or not when you go into that room. They didn't. Nobody ever did. Um, all the other kids that I know were, were in the honors program that were in there. But um, we started, I, I studied with a group on the different classes that I couldn't figure out how to, you know, achieve that, um, that level of uh, success that I wanted. And it was they had a slightly different approach to, to learning. It was competitive, you know, which I felt like I was already competitive, but it was a competitiveness in, in funness. Um, every, you know, we could take a, an analytical chemistry subject and we were literally in a competition to show up to that room having an outstanding understanding of that material for that day and if we were not and we hadn't accomplished that then someone in the group who had it had sunk in uh they would take the lead and it was a joy for that person to share with everyone else so we be i had teams of people who helped us learn and um every once in a while someone would come to the honors room and they would want our assignment or something. Say, oh, I had a bad, a bad week, and I just need the the answers to the assignment. And um, we despise those people. And we tell them, you're welcome to come study with us anytime, but we will not give anybody answers. We'll help you work through an answer, but you have to once we've you know, you have to understand an answer before we'd let you have it. Um, what was it about the class that was so hard for you? Why were you getting C's? Why were you struggling so much? Was it the material? Was it adapting to college life? Was it figuring out your professors? 
so the strange thing is I would think I understood it all, but when it was time to take the test and put it down on the paper, there was a disconnect there. And um, um, so maybe that was part of it is learning how to respond in a way that uh, the pre professor appreciates that you understood the problem and you solved it correctly. Um, but anyway, that the little answer I got to go to the honors room, that was a scary day going in there the first time because I was pretty obedient. And, you know, I felt like I was sneaking into a, a <laughs> nuclear reactor plant or something. And, and uh, you know, if I got caught, I'd be arrested and, yeah. and, and go to prison or something. And did you end up doing pretty well in school after that? Yes. Yeah. Um, I did, I did very well. There was, um, I always worked part-time and, um, I always carried a heavy course load and, um, some of those, uh, course load, um, I would have to get different levels of approval to take classes. There was a fear that I'd run out of money. Mm. And so I need to get things done fast. Were you working in Provo also? I mean, you said on your holidays, you'd go work the CO2 plant, but were you, did you have a job in Utah? Yeah. Um, in the early days as a freshman, uh, it was on the maintenance crew. Um, uh, we'd do anything from uh, fix leaky faucets in the dormitories to clean up messes um, um, that had been created by other workers. Have you ever paid very memorable? <laughs> have you ever paid anybody to like clean out your rain gutters or fix a stove or replace a pipe? Or you just do all that yourself? Mm, those things I do myself. But I'm also at this stage of my life very respectful of um people who um people in certain trades. I don't know how to say. So I respect plumbers, for example. Um, you can watch all of the videos you want. You can learn so much, like on YouTube, when you get ready to go do a task. And I use it a lot. But for the, for the tradesperson, not only do they know how to do it in a perfect setting, they know how to deal with all of the imperfections, the problems you might run into, the, the, the corrosion issues maybe in the plumbing or whatever. And they've, experience counts for something. So if I'm insisting on doing something, I might even take some pictures and show it to my neighbor who's a plumber and say, I'm thinking about doing it this way. And I watch the YouTube videos and stuff and then get their feedback on what they think. How did you select roommates and what was the social part of what was the social aspect of college like for you? My freshman year in college was in the dorms, and um, 
we were placed in the dorms based on how, I forget her name, sweet lady. She was a widow and she'd run um, um, what was called the Deseret Towers building she was in for many years. Sweet, sweet lady. And she had this idea that, that people should be placed based on their background in the church and body type. I never really understood that. So um, I was on the floor with um, skinny converts. I'm not skinny anymore, but in those days I was very skinny. And um, we were all new to the church. Just like having all of the all of the people who don't know what's going on helping each other out. <laughs> what was that like? I mean, coming from the ranch and then ending up at BYU with a bunch of other new converts was was that difficult socially, emotionally? Or I loved it because started? we were all going through some of the similar feelings, not knowing for sure what we should do and what was expected of us, and. Um, I do think that somebody, maybe our head, the head resident of that building, um, I can't remember if I told you, but we had a, a great big, huge guy show up. And he would show up at different times of the day and night to check on us, I guess. He was on the football team. And um, he's just a huge guy. And... Um, kind of kind of rough around the edges you know and we're little guys and um you know i can remember his um um when he came to my dorm room one day he seemed angry he grabbed me by the collar drug me into a stairwell and shoved me against the wall and he said when are you going on a mission? I'm like, well, nobody's asked yet. <laughs> Is there something I'm supposed to do to get a go? I said, look around. I said, all my friends, they're gone. You know, and I miss them dearly. But um, yeah, I, I'm here. I'm ready to go. I just, uh, nobody has said anything to me about going you're the first <laughs> <laughs> so what year was this oh it was probably 78 no 70 um 78 78 or 79 and is this freshman year of school or i think when he showed up um, that would have been my third semester. So I started my next okay. year of college and, um, that's when he showed up and, um, and I kept a list of, um, uh, I just come to think the world of all of the people on my floor of that dormitory. And I'd made my own personal list of every single person. I might actually have it someplace to this day, but I kept track of what happened to each one of them over the years, for several years. Huh. Um, 
Um, in the final analysis, every one of them uh, went on a mission, except for one who was not a member of the church, who would later join the church, and one who had some kind of a strange, scary disease. He was uh, hemophilia. Is that had something to do with blood? Yeah. And eventually he would get uh, something that was a strange, scary disease that was later known as AIDS from transfusions, and he would pass away. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that was a long time ago. So this guy signs you up against the wall, asks you when you're going on a mission. You ended up going on a mission. Mm-hmm. So how much longer... How how much time passed between that experience and you going on a mission? Um, I think my, that was pro- that may have been my last semester at BYU before leaving. I would go home. I would work at the at the um, dry ice CO two plant and rake in some cash to help uh, support going on a mission. Um, and then there was kind of a new problem: the people at the a carbon dioxide plant they did not want me to leave on a mission and um they wanted me to uh actually take over the management of another co2 plant in wellington utah because the guy who was running it had just died of um lung cancer or something like that and they're short staff um, what a blessing to not take that um, job, yeah. Because um, the that facility produced a lot of dangerous gases. They were the result of that man's, that caused that man, the manager's death, and eventually the plant was shut down um, because of the uh, contaminants that they were dealing with and uh, from the CO two wells. Do you think? Were they aware? Were some people aware and just trying to brush under the rug? Or do you think people were just mostly unaware, oblivious? You know, industrial hygiene has come a long way in the last few decades. I don't know how much they were aware. And uh, OSHA, um, you know, I think sometimes they walked into those plants and they didn't know what they were looking at um and often they end up hiring people to run facilities that they're focused on production right yeah like the co2 plant that i worked at um and it burned down over and over again <laughs> i can't i think maybe i t- told you that and i told them when when they hired me i says look when i'm working here I said it would be an embarrassment for this facility to burn down because this is the largest fire extinguisher in the entire world. How in the (laughs) heck could it ever burn down? (laughs) Well, the the workers there, when something goes wrong, um, you know, they're dealing with a lot of stuff that has ignition potential, uh, potential and stuff. They haven't thought about how to deal with a fire. Um, so I was there all by myself one day when they had put 
several hundred gallons of alcohol through a CO2 line up at the wellhead. It was supposed to get caught in a, in a liquid separator uh, partway before it got to the plant. But the liquid separator was already full because the person who was supposed to drain it before the alcohol got there forgot or, or thought they did and they didn't, whatever. All of the alcohol came in uh, through the big boiler uh, grating when the boiler was off and alcohol covered the floor of the plant. And then I'm like, oh, this is really, really bad because any second or any minute that boiler is going to reignite because, you know, it runs for a while and it's off and it runs while and it's huge. I mean, it's like a boiler that's like the size of your, you know, half the size of a house or something. And so sure enough, um, I'm there all by myself because everybody else is gone and the boiler comes on and the whole floor of the plant just erupts in flames. And I promised it'd never burn while I was there. So I just went to, there was um, four automated valves to release CO2 into the presses. So I just opened all the presses so they wouldn't hold any gas and I flipped the switches. And seconds later, the fire was all out. Put a little bit of electrical wiring to fix, a couple hours of downtime. But the plant was still there. <laughs> Nobody thought of that before with all the CO2? Oh, you should have seen the look on their faces when the crew, you know, the, most of the plant's crew had gone to do this. Um, they put alcohol through the pipes to try to clear uh, um, ice that has, um, in the wintertime, any liquid in the CO2 builds up as ice and blocks the, blocks the flow. And... Um, when they come back, the looks on their faces were just, they were horrified at what they had, had done and terrified as to whether they were still going to have a job or not. Yeah. We had all worked out. <laughs> so this guy slams you against the wall, tells you to go on a mission. You decide to go on a mission. What was the key contributing factor that led you to want to serve a mission? I knew it was the right thing to do, and I remembered Elder Oliver and Elder Olson, um, who had been the missionaries that taught me. And look, I'd watched many, many of my closest friends get ready to leave on their mission. Um, and so I wanted to go, and he says, well, you need to go talk to the bishop. And so I talked to my bishop in Provo, you know, and um, he said he'd get the ball rolling. He talked to my bishop as well. Uh, so next trip home, um, I had an interview with my bishop there. And uh, I believe that's also when I got um, set apart, uh, well, um, the Melchizedek priesthood. Mm -hmm. um, in those days, um, it, it, the Melchizedek priesthood, often you didn't, People didn't get it until pretty close to leaving on their mission. I think that practice has changed now. Um, they've seen it's more important to, for them to assume those responsibilities earlier in, in life. 
about the time they graduate from high school. Or... And then do you remember going through the temple for the first time? Yep. Um, it was a wonderful experience. It was a Provo temple um, that I went through. Um, my uh, One of my good friends, uh, Milo Ott, which I haven't seen in many years, he um, he'd already been through the temple and he um, um, offered to go through with me on that day. So then you get your mission call to Japan. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking when you get called to Japan? Well, I had no idea that I'd be called to someplace like that. Um, my, my, one of my friends at college and I, uh, actually is Milo Ott as well. Um, we talked about where we might like to go when we got our mission calls. And we just knew, we both knew one thing that um, we didn't really want to go on missions to Japan because we had heard that quite a, quite a few people from the States were going to Japan in those days and just couldn't stand the thought of eating raw fish and that kind of stuff. <laughs> I thought that was disgusting and that we'd starve to death if we went. So getting a mission call to Japan was like um, maybe, uh, you know, um, some prayers might not be answered if they're not appropriate. Um, but I was at the CO2 plant when my mission call arrived. And um, my mom never bothered me at work. Um, but my manager come running out into the plant saying, your mom is on the telephone, Justin. And she seems to be really upset. And when I answered the phone, she was crying. I couldn't understand what she was saying. And I only thought this there probably been a farm accident. That's the horrific things that happened on a farm. And I'm like, Mama, I need you to calm down and just tell me. And she says, well, you got a letter today. And it says you're going to Japan. And she says... I never knew they would send you to someplace like that. <laughs> so that's how my mission call got opened, and <laughs> I learned about it. Well, maybe next time, maybe we could wrap up here for today, and next time we could talk about Japan. Okay. Thanks for listening to the third episode of Sundays with Tozer. In episode four, we discussed Tozer moving to Japan for two years and how a flat tire helped Tozer save a young man's life. To be notified each time an episode of Sundays with Tozer is posted, subscribe to the Nickels and Dimes podcast. Thanks again for listening to Sundays with Tozer.